This is a Crow's Nest podcast. And welcome to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia, and I am here with I. Oh, I didn't ask how to pronounce it beforehand. I'm always so prepared. Is it Brandon Whited? Uh, it's Whited. Whited. Brandon Whited. You know, it was the other choice that I had. I, it, I ran them around in my head and picked the other one. It happens. It happens. I apologize, Brandon Whited. No, no worries. From and I found you because of the Titanic Memorial Lighthouse. Oh, yeah. It's mm-hmm. a great project. Well, what else do you do with the Titanic community? Because I know that's not your only your only bid. Right. I'm a uh, trustee with Titanic International Society. Uh, my technical title is membership outreach, uh, which basically just means I work to uh, hopefully get us some more members. Um, I, I take care of our Instagram and Twitter page. Uh, but primarily I'm an author and a researcher. Awesome. I ask everyone the same question because it's unoriginal, but it's a really good place to start, which is what is your Titanic story? Because everyone's is profoundly different, even if they kind of quote unquote start the same, even if it's the same book or the same film, Mm -hmm. everyone's story is unique. Right. Um, well, I think my fascination, uh, with shipwrecks in general started when I was probably in second grade. Because at that point, uh, we we learned about the Lusitania and erroneously learned that it was the reason the United States went into World War One, which it was not. But I remember being fascinated by that ship sinking. And I went home and uh, pulled down the Encyclopedia Britannica because this was long before everyone had the Internet. And right. I, I read the encyclopedia entry on the Lusitania. And from that point on, I was kind of interested in shipwrecks. But uh, the most pivotal thing for me, especially as far as my Titanic interest, would have been a couple of years later. I uh, happened to find this pop-up book for children that was all about shipwrecks. And Mm -hmm. toward the center of it, there was what I would best describe as a recreation of Ken Marshall's uh, painting of the Titanic sinking. And it popped up, of course. And I remember just staring at that fixated and reading the description over and over because I bought the book and I couldn't believe that that had actually happened. It was about a year after that, that the James Cameron film came out. And so, of course, I saw that and all the documentaries were re-released. All the books were re-released. So it really hit me at a time when uh, I could really absorb it. And it would last. It made a lasting impact on me. That's important, too, because you look at there. I mean, there's not a specific age for people, but there is a sort of age in every person's life when I think you're impressionable specifically to media. Yes, yes. And I was, you know, around 10, 11 years old. So I was very impressionable at that point. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's it's something that we see now when they make documentaries about, you know, I think there's a, I haven't seen it, but there's something on Netflix called, um, the, I think it's The Toys That Made Us. Where yes, I've watched that. I hear it's really good, but, you know, we're, we're going back and seeing that these things that maybe were inconsequential, 
in the moment or to people that they were impactful to are actually profoundly important to the people that they were intended for. Like I think about fads that are in, in, you know, in, in right now, like Paw Patrol is a huge thing for kids now. I'm, yes. I'm too old for Paw Patrol. I don't understand it. You know, I don't, I don't know either. what it is. Yeah. It's, but you know, for some kids out there, they're going to remember this when they're in their thirties, forties, fifties, be like, Oh my God. Remember when we used to watch Paw Patrol together? <gasps> you used to watch Paw Patrol too. Oh my, who is your favorite? You know, right. those, those little, little yeah. moments. And we, and we had our own, you know, we had sure. our, our equivalent of, of it growing up. You know, those, what those was things it for you? have a lasting impact. I'm sorry. What was it for you? It was, it's not Paw Patrol for me. I, I'm, I'm stalling for time trying to remember what it was. Uh, I was really into uh, this show called Wishbone. <gasps> and and some people remember it some people don't but he Come was a dog yes he was yeah. a dog and you know i swear a lot of my knowledge of classic literature comes from that show <laughs> i that was a really underrated show for anyone who doesn't yes. know what we're talking about it was about a jack russell terrier named wishbone who would go on literary adventures like he would hop in and out of books and he would be like Sherlock Holmes and you kind yeah. of you'd learn child friendly versions of these, you know, and modified versions of these stories. But, you know, like you were right. saying, it was the first time that I'd been introduced to some of those things because I was, a, you know, a kid. I wasn't running around the library picking up Ivanhoe. That wasn't exactly in my wheelhouse. Don Quixote. I remember. Yeah, kid, I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. going to read that, but Wishbone was. Right. And he made it interesting. Loved yeah. Wishbone. I did too. And Arthur was oh, one. I loved for, Arthur. Which that, that so lasted good. until just last year, I think, that finally ended. So it went through several generations. But that, that was, was one when show. I was a kid. Same thing, reading, you know. Yes, yes, yes. You know. There's so many books that I just remember thinking into. And there was also that um, need to wait for new media for new material things just didn't come out as quickly as as they as they did yeah you couldn't binge it no that's actually what's driving me crazy currently about ted lasso i I still make myself wait a week you know like the old days i can't i mm. i do i want that feeling i want to absorb each episode and wonder what's going to happen next that's fair I do yeah. something different with certain shows. Like there's a show I like. It's a it's a cartoon called Ruby, and each episode is only about twenty twenty five minutes long, so they're they're not very long. And I personally don't happen to think it's worth waiting a week just to watch twenty five minutes, especially because the way they do it now, it's like they make a movie and then chop it up into twenty five minute bits. So it's like this isn't oh. meant to be an episode. This is like just a weird ending. So right. I'll wait for that whole thing to come out. And then I will binge it, but I will wait until the final episode comes out. Like, I think this season, it comes out in the like beginning of May. I'm just going to wait till May, I'm not watching anything till then. Okay. I mean, it's, it's an approach. I don't think it's the right approach. <laughs> well, it's, uh, there's probably no right approach. It's whatever you like. That's true. I'm learning that with the show as, as well. People have a lot of opinions about certain things like, like the camera. Like the Titanic. And the Titanic. People have many yes. opinions on the Titanic. What is your, what, uh, I don't even like, what is, I don't even have any controversial opinions. It's a weird question to ask, but like, what's something that you see people discussing a lot where you just like, I don't know, maybe wish people would let it go. 
for me, it's the switch theory. Well, the switch theory is, uh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's surprising in a sad way, how many people believe it. Um, yeah. I was shocked how many people actually believe that and how, cause I remember when, you know, Robin Gardner's book first came out and, you know, the debates back then. And I kind of thought that had died away until I got more involved in the uh, Facebook world. And I realized there it's still alive. Those, yeah. those uh, legend, those conspiracies just will not, they won't die. Um, yeah. They're, they're too juicy. Yeah. A lot of people latch on to that. You know, they want it, you know, they want it to be a deeper story. Uh, I think is, is at the base of it. If it's not the switch theory, then it's the coal bunker fire. Um, if it's not the coal bunker th- fire, it's uh, the brittle steel conspiracy. You know, it's, there's this innumerable. I, I remember once I actually engaged with a man on Facebook over uh, the conspiracy theory that uh, the ship was uh, sunk on purpose uh, because several people on board were opposing the federal income. Yes. The Federal Reserve. Yeah. And they fully believe it and they get hostile when you present basic facts. But I think at the root of it, they latch onto this because they want it to be a deeper story. They don't want all of this to have just happened because a ship hit an iceberg. No, there has to be more to it when there wasn't. We look for reasons in tragedy. And yeah, sometimes there are. Sometimes there are reasons like, well, you know, this happened for sad reasons or, you know, the reason this place isn't here anymore is because there was a war. Sometimes there there is a real reason or, you know, hey, these people aren't here anymore because, you know, now is a great time to teach children about genocide. <laughs> like, because that's, yeah. why, you know, there's sometimes there's an explanation. And unfortunately, sometimes the answer is, well, why isn't this town here anymore? A big sinkhole opened up and it's just gone. There is right. no further explanation. It just, it happened one day. Or it was a mining community and oh. the mines are gone and well that triggered something i'm sorry oh that's just one of the scariest concepts just being like buried alive oh well i just meant that the mine was no longer producing whatever it was they were oh i was thinking collapsed mine (laughs) i didn't go there great glad that i could help us out with that right now i'm thinking of that though so that would be worse worse. but I, i know what you're saying and that sometimes things just happen right Right. There's and, no, sometimes there's not a deeper reason. No, and and as you said, it's tempting to be like, but of course there's a reason. There was a fire, or there was this, yeah. or there was that, or, well, Smith was going, it was this one person's fault. It was Smith's fault because he did this. It was Murdoch's fault because he did that. It was Lightfoot's fault because he did this. It was Wild's fault because he existed. Yeah, it was Ismay's fault. Right, it was Ismay and his mustache. It was just like, you just start pointing fingers at everyone. Right. Well, we we have to, I think as humans, we want to put a face on, we have to have a human reason, a a, uh, in human form, a reason in human form. I'll put it that way. You see that with everything. Yeah, it's, it's, as you said, it's a natural human tendency in the same way that we like to anthropomorphize everything. It's like, you like to find a reason for, I mean, it makes sense. You want to find logic in places where there isn't any. 
and a a lot of the titanic and its um legacy and what actually just happened in general is highly illogical like you think about it now of course like well why would you be steaming through an ice field you're like because that's just what you used to do back then in the same way that you used to not have seatbelts in cars it was just oh yeah how you did things and of course now that is ludicrous or you could just walk through airport security even i remember that yeah yeah it was a different world yeah unfortunately it takes tragedies and disasters to make big changes I think the 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 line is something along the lines of like every safety regulation is written in blood, and it's, it's sad yeah, but true. It's very true. It's very true. Well, it's the reason that there's now enough lifeboats for capacity instead of for um, conveyance. Right, and uh, of course the Titanic gets singled out for mm-hmm. not having enough lifeboats. With you know, the majority of laymen don't realize basically none of those vessels had enough lifeboats. No, because if you upgraded Titanic, you'd have to upgrade Olympic and Britannic, and then yes. that would force Mauritania and Lusitania to have to upgrade. It would be a ripple effect and a very costly one. Extremely, yeah. Well, it's like you just brought up like um, TSA and stuff. I don't remember, but I, I'm sure that it was really expensive back in the day to start putting in all those freaking scanners. Oh, it would have been, yeah. This. All of a sudden, now we all got, you know, just got to spend a bunch of money putting body scanners here so that people can think they're getting tan. Yeah. <laughs> right. I hate those things. I hate them so much. Yeah. With the fact that you have to do a lifeboat drill now, if you go on like a cruise or a boat. Whereas back in the day, they were like, well, we're supposed to have a lifeboat drill, but we'd rather just not. Yeah. It got, you know, the wind was up or something. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody and, wanted uh, to do it. We from couldn't what find I've John. Read, the drills, the drills that were held were pretty, pretty perfunctory. You know, really? A couple of crewmen would get in a lifeboat and then it would kind of be lowered somewhat and then they would get back out. Um, right. I remember reading about that on the Lusitania at uh-huh. least during the final voyage. Yeah. It was because um, several passengers on that voyage were not. Not very happy with what they saw during the lifeboat drill. Well, because this, um, the final voyage of Lusitania was also a couple years after the Titanic. Right. Um, Lusitania. Yeah, it sailed for a few years afterwards. So this would have been with the full knowledge of what happens. I can understand where people in Lusitania would have been like. Yeah, and they knew they were in a danger zone. You know, there was a very real, they knew there was a very real possibility that they could encounter disaster. It was an active war zone, the siege. Mm-hmm. This was during, oh man, World War One. Yes. Yay! Beginning, so yeah, the beginning bad of World with, War. So bad with history. Um, but yeah, unlike, you know, again, when Titanic was sailing, there that was a time of peace. So your biggest perils at sea were bergs, other ships, stuff in the night. You weren't really expecting attack. No, no. At least all that all that changed in just a few years, though. It is pretty crazy to think about that, and I know you brought it up super briefly. I I actually have an upcoming episode that specifically talks about the Lusitania, but Mm. because you brought it up, I want to touch on it. You mentioned something really um, interesting, and you probably know way more about it than I do. So you brought up accurately that people 
often give the Lusitania a little bit more quote unquote credit than it's due for the United States joining the war. Can you, right. can you tell the listeners about that? Just maybe break it down for people I, who don't know that. Yeah. Um, I don't know what's in like elementary school textbooks now, but when <laughs> I was a kid. I don't think I learned about the Lusitania until I was in high school. So let me tell really? you it's okay. changed. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, I've heard things have changed quite significantly. Um, When I was, you know, a kid in like second or third grade, our history book actually said we entered World War One because the Lusitania sank had made a direct A to B connection. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the Lusitania disaster. I'm not an expert on it, but it did help turn uh, turn our thoughts toward Germany in a more hostile way. A lot of people asked Wilson for war at that point. But we didn't actually, the U.S. didn't join the war for another two years. Mm-hmm. And uh, in his declaration of war, Wilson actually did not even reference the Lusitania as a reason. Uh, ultimately, uh, we joined because Germany was uh, sort of strong-arming Mexico to join on their side in exchange for giving them back lands that had already been claimed. Uh, in addition to the all-out warfare they were raging at sea with their Mm U-boats. That, in general, is is more of why we joined than than just, well, they sank the Lusitania, so we're going to get revenge. It's like you were saying earlier, people really like to make logical conclusions, and it does make sense to just be able to say, well, we joined the war because the the Lusitania sank. It's easy. Right. And that sort of is what became the myth that's Mm -hmm. i mean at least when i was a kid growing up that was what you were taught i think that's even what i had heard too yeah and only in the last few years has that really kind of started to be looked at again uh, people are realizing well no there really wasn't that much of a connection between us joining and the lusitania sinking it definitely turned american opinion in 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 a strong way against germany but uh yeah Makes sense to me. Right. I mean, it's the same way that we're also now, you know, finding out about all kinds of historical events that, you know, weren't covered in school or details about things that were just either not revealed or weren't important at the time. When Mm -hmm. you have, you know, new evidence and new technology and the ability to actually go back and look at things, you discover a lot more. Absolutely. Sorry, I thought I heard a really interesting car horn outside, and now I don't hear anything, so I think I was hallucinating. <laughs> Excellent. That was going well. It happens. It, it happens. Does. Well, you mentioned that you were an author. Are you working on anything now? I am. I'm working on a uh, local history project. Oh, cool. um, Speaking of finding things that we're not taught about. Um, oh, yeah. And, until about six years ago, I didn't realize there were really any links uh, to maritime history in my part of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've found enough to uh, put a book together on it. In oh, fact, nice. their stories are pretty well forgotten. Uh, they involve the ti- they do touch on the Titanic, also mm-hmm. the Lusitania, the Morrow Castle, uh, the SS Vestris, the SS Columbia, uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, multiple vessels are, are going to be included in that. I think people sometimes forget that um, in the past few hundred years, Virginia did, and you know the Virginia, no Virginia, Virginia, Maryland area um, used to have a lot more um, shipping traffic. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I'm, I'm way down in the Southern tip of Virginia. I'm, uh, I'm almost in Tennessee. So when you get down to my area, most people don't really think of sea travel or, sure. you know, people are like, well, there probably wasn't, I, even me with my interest in it, I always assumed there really wasn't, weren't any connections to these big shipwrecks. Um, but, you know, as John Maxton Graham said, it's the only way to cross. So if uh, anyone, yeah, it was the only way to cross back then. So if anyone ever traveled out of the country, they ended up taking a steamship mm-hmm. up to a certain point in time. And yeah. uh, it, it turned out that the sinking of the Vestris, I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but Mm-mm. I was actually passing a house going to and from work every day where a family died on the Vestris. Uh, they had lived there. Mm. I never knew that. I'm not familiar with the Vestris. Okay. It sank in 1928 off the coast of Virginia. Uh, it was a steamship on its way to uh, San Juan. And uh, it left New Jersey in November 1928. It was uh, criminally overloaded. There was a lot of negligence in the overloading of the cargo. Mm. And then it hit rough weather and ultimately sank due to that. And uh, about 112 people died. Yeah, I just looked it up. That's what it says. It was bound to Barbados from New York City and sank yep. at Hampton Roads, Virginia. Yep, off the coast there. That's sad. There's a lot more shipwrecks than I think people realize. You know, there's the big ones that people are aware of. Titanic, Costa Concordia, Lusitania. Mm-hmm. But then there's just, you know, up until, you know, maybe 70, I have no idea when, air travel became to be commercially available if you needed to get anywhere like really get anywhere you were going by boat yep absolutely you had to you had to yeah exactly it was the method of travel that's how you got across and you know you didn't have as many in you didn't have any radar or you know sonar or cell phones or ability to communicate like you can now so there was right unfortunately a lot more wrecks and damage and people that would be lost at sea and you just never know or wrecks that you know you you get on the ship and feel like when will we see you again well theoretically in 18 months you know there was yeah no no guarantee of those sort of things and it was just a dangerous but necessary method of travel absolutely yeah and you were complete until wireless became common you were completely disconnected from the world really during that time you were kind of on your own planet out there i love the ocean but i don't know if there's a lot to fear from living an actual life at sea yes it's a lot of danger out there absolutely and most of it what frust- not frustrating but most of the scariest is like it's not hostile danger it's not like oh no bad villains from a movie it's like well we might die of heat or starvation or a storm or rogue wave or rogue wave angry turtle who knows (laughs) cracking cracking options is there any uh this is unrelated to titanic just because what you've mentioned a bunch of shipwreck names that i don't know the name of is there any wrecks that you in particular think are interesting or you know like the vestress that just kind of are a little bit on the forgotten side that yeah, I kind of want to talk about for a sec because I yeah, like learning. I'm actually, 
I'm actually very interested in a ship called uh, the SS Columbia, which uh, sank off the coast of California in 1907. It was a coastal steamer. Um, it was it was first built in 1880, so by 1907 it was an older ship. But in 1880, it was actually the first use of electricity on a ship. Oh. Uh, Thomas Edison actually supervised the installation of the lights on the Columbia. Mm. And um, I had never heard of it until I was actually doing this local history research. And I discovered that a local man actually died in the sinking. And uh, from there, I kept looking into it. I've been able to uh, contact a number of descendants. And they've all had these, like, amazing, crisp pictures of their relative who died. And with the survivors, I've gotten all these accounts. And, uh, you know, it's just so fresh because nobody's really looked into the Columbia. But it's it's really caught a hold of me. Um, it's It's something I've worked on. I've actually... I did an article on the local man who died, and then I have another article coming out in Voyage through Titanic International Society that's more of a general telling of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very tragic because it sank in about 10 minutes. Wow. And, and Maybe even a little less, but around 10 minutes at about 1230 a.m. after colliding with a schooner off the coast of California. So it went down very quickly. There was very little chance for people to get out. And it had on board a group, and I've not determined the exact number, but there was a good-sized group of teachers returning from a uh, national teachers' conference in Los mm-hmm. Angeles. And all but just a few of them perished. That's really sad. Most of the children died. Early reports say all the children died, but I have found that at least a couple survived. Uh, One was 16. You could technically consider her a child. Uh, I would consider that a child. Right. Especially at that time, because they didn't use the phrase teenager. You were were still a child. Yeah, that's another thing. But she actually saved the life of an adult man. Wow. Uh, She helped hold him up. He was injured. She helped hold him up in the water. And there's just all these amazing stories related to the Colombian. They are completely forgotten. Yeah. So that's that's one right that's now. really that's one that's really interested me in the last few years. That reminds me of one that I've mentioned on my show a couple of times, much more mo- recent that I have a personal interest in, and that is the Seawall Ferry. Hmm. And that I'm, I don't think I'm familiar with that. That sunk off the coast of South Korea in 2013, I believe it was 2013. Okay. Same thing. It was a ferry. It was horrifyingly overloaded, and Mm. it had a lot of students and teachers on board for a class trip. Wow. I do think I remember that happening now. Oh, that sank in real time on the news. It was was upsetting. It was sad. Yeah. There was voicemails being played from these children and videos on social media and photos, and it was very upsetting. And then it, of course, comes to find out there was corruption 78 layers thick, and the captain and some of his higher-up crew just abandoned ship after telling everyone. Okay, I do remember that, yeah. All right, yep, that's the one. That's the one. I remember that, yes. That was terrible. Ridiculously terrible and also horribly modern. For yeah. something of that nature to be, ha- something of that mm-hmm. graphic, upsetting, and egregiously corrupt nature. It's like, this is so very reminiscent of things that would happen in 1912. 
Yeah, it still happens. I know. It's and when you were telling me about the Columbia, I was thinking it's like this sounds like it repeated itself pseudo recently. I mean, obviously there's differences, but it just goes to show that we can make as many changes as we like, but there are still gonna be things that happen when, you know, greed gets in the way. Overloading. Right. Human nature and nature you know the ocean mm-hmm. yeah it's there's always going to be a chance that something like that can happen and that's what happened with you know titanic i don't think that you know, from all from what i understand speaking of like overloading that was very much not the case on titanic they had no way less than capacity for passengers they had you know there was a coal strike at the time there was a bunch of variables happening so it's not like it was wildly overloaded it was not crazy overcrowded you know, there weren't a lot of, there were some, I don't know what I'm trying to say, like dangerous things, like maybe, yeah, risky things, risky, there we go. Those are risky behaviors, you know, maybe going too fast, things of that nature, but for all yeah, intents in and purposes, hindsight. in hindsight, sure. But again, for in, in the moment and for all intents and purposes, they were just kind of doing, and they're, you know, by contrast, they were in no way going as fast as say, Mauritania would have been going. No. Just no, by nature or, of how fast they go. Yeah. Yeah, they're just faster. Yeah. Absolutely. And I don't think anyone would have criticized Lusitania for going that speed just because it's like, well, what would you expect her to do? That's how fast she goes. Like, mm. <laughs> what? But yeah. I'm just, I'm just guessing. It's hard to say. Sure. It's hard to say, really. I mean,. So you have to rely on all like testimony and do the best you can piecing things together. But I think the conclusion that every sort of expert that I've spoken to is that the men on Titanic for all intents and purposes did everything they could within their power. And especially in those 30 seconds after the sinking, when not sinking after the, um, the collision, when the orders were being given and everything was being executed, that they did what they were supposed to do as quickly as they were supposed to do it. Yeah. And, uh, Came very close to avoiding the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Very close. Uh, yeah, it's it's easy to play armchair sailor or whatever, Monday morning quarter, quarterback, and uh, say, well, they should have did this or they should have did that. Um, but, of course, the officers were, they were very seasoned for the most part. They, they, uh, they were top, top pick. That's why they were there. Um, and Murdoch of course years earlier had actually helped the arabic when he was on the arabic prevented it from uh colliding i think with another ship by overriding the chief officer's order and grabbing mm-hmm. the helm himself and swinging it out of the way so yeah uh, he you know, he's very very competent mm-hmm. well every all of the officers at least from what i understand on titanic were very competent yeah I mean, as you said, they were handpicked for this for this voyage for a reason. Right, right, yeah. And uh, the older ones, you know, had started their careers all the way back in sail, under sailing, you know, vessels. So, yeah, they definitely knew their business. I asked Dan Parks this a long time ago, and I forgot because that's how good, smart people do things, but. <laughs> If you wanted a career at sea, if you wanted to be a wild or Murdoch or a light holer, how shush, she doesn't know the answer. How old 
would you be when you, you know, first stepped foot on your first on your first ship or your your first boat? I, I don't know how old you'd be and, and what the first classification of vessel would be, but how old would you be when you about when you, you started? Um definitely not something I'm an expert on, but I, from what I've read, I know a lot of them started when they were around fourteen. So young. I mean, I wasn't yeah, looking for a specific case. Yeah. Right. Captain Smith, if I'm not mistaken, was like 13 and started as like a cabin boy. Yeah. yeah. The point I was only trying to illustrate was that the people on the Titanic's crew, this wasn't day one. This no. wasn't, oh, I'm, a, I'm honored to be here, sir. I'll do a great right. job. <laughs> no, no, most of them, well, at least in the, you know, on, on the bridge realm. Yeah, the high like, ranking up. I'm, yeah, I, I'm sorry, for listeners, I'm talking about ranked officers. I'm not talking right. about every no, single we, sailor on the ship. Right. It, uh, I mean, it's really a life, not just a, you know, it wasn't just a job. It was a life, almost a lifetime commitment. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the joke, not joke, but I mean, the statement, a life at sea was a statement, not a joke. Right. Right. You you meant it. And if you you quit your life and see something happened. They were on a vessel much more than they were in their house. You know, it was it was truly their life. I mean, it makes sense. We were just talking about how this was the way to travel. Mm -hmm. This is how and your job was to ferry these things like I have my Titanic mug right in front of me. So like if Titanic had made it, (laughs) if you were one of the crewmen on the ship, you don't just get to New York and get to hop off and do whatever you want. You get right back out. You got to get back to Southampton, do that road again, do that line again, however many times. And then maybe you do it indefinitely, or maybe you do it four times because you know, you're then going to the Olympic to do it all over again. And then in the next four years, you're going to go back to the Titanic because you're part of the white star line. And this is what you do. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, not a lot of not a lot of turnaround time, not a lot of family time or shore time. Uh, I think you had to you had to love it. Yeah, yeah, it's you did you would be very miserable. Well, I think it reminds me a lot of careers now, like like medicine and law, where you have to make those choices really early to stick with and in for an extremely long period of time you have to know that that you're gonna want to do that because by the time you finish with you know your residency or by the time you're actually eligible to practice you know law independently or whatever it is you want to be you'll be your peers maybe far and away into their careers right or have the ability to kind of switch whereas you may be not stuck's not the word that i want because that's not what what you mean but be like you start when you're 15 years old at sea and come back when you're 30 years old. You've got 15 years on the ocean. That's 15 great years, but that has taught you absolutely nothing about a typewriter. Right. And it explains to me a lot why, and I I think it's surprising for some people to learn how many of the surviving officers ended up going back to careers at sea. Not all, but, but most, and it's sort of surprising, but when you think about how few options there were, to branch out. And that was really what they knew. I mean, it was, that was all they knew. Um, I think one of them, I believe it was Pittman ended up as a purser later on or worked, worked in the purser's department. His eyesight started failing. Right. And, uh, at that point he transitioned of course off the bridge um, mm-hmm. into the purser's department. 
yeah, all all of them, you know, in some way stuck with it. I was thinking of Charles Jochen, for example, Jochen, and I think almost as soon as he was done giving his testimony, he was back baking on the Olympic or something, you know, that, I believe that so. yeah, I mean, I think light toller went right back on another ship. I think, mm-hmm. you know, oh man, I'm, his name was in my head and now it's gone. Other officer person went back out. To see. There we go. I was having a moment there. I like how you saw me making an extremely weird gesture in the I was distance. Like, oh, and box hall. That's yes. a. I yeah. was drawing a box. <laughs> it's a box. <laughs> it's a box. Thank you so much. I'm sorry, listeners, that I, I was just making. It doesn't even look like a box now that I see the motion I was making. It looks like a circle. I just and managed to worked. figure it out. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, they didn't have the option, you know. After the disaster, I, I kind of joked about it on my show before, where it's like they didn't immediately get whisked away to a grief counselor and given no. a blanket and soup and told, you know, it's okay, we're going to no. set you up. You, you know, you stay here and you do all these things, all these wonderful things that we now right. know you no. need. Yeah, they didn't have that. Mm-mm. Yeah, they didn't have that. It's uh, why you see some survivors coping um, in much less than healthy ways. By not really coping. Not really coping, no. Um, Alcohol or another marriage or, you know, both. (laughs) Well, even now we're not the greatest with, you know, we address the issues. But back then it was just sort of like, you'll you'll be all right. Pat on the back. Yeah, we're just now coming to uh, a place where it's more uh, acceptable to to talk about your mental health and uh, mm-hmm. address it. Yeah. And there were hopefully, um, hopefully that continues in that direction. I hope so. Cause you see in the wake of many of these shipwrecks, not just Titanic from the survivors, a lot of guilt and unfortunately a lot of suicides. Yes. yes. Almost, almost too many. Yeah. Survivor's guilt is um, a very powerful thing. Oh, I'm not going to be able to remember this man's name. Uh, he was one of the survivors of Titanic. I don't remember how old he was, but I want to say he was younger. You're probably going to remember this name as I tell the story. But I think he was invited to the filming of A Night to Remember to be on set when he was an adult. And he was, was this, Night to Remember was this 97th Titanic. No, it can't have been 97th Titanic. He'd been way too old. This had to have been A Night to Remember. Um but I guess he was, they had to hold him back because he Lawrence was attempting, Beasley. thank you, Lawrence Beasley, who was attempting to drown himself in the uh, first class uh, dining room set uh, as it flooded. Well, I don't remember the exact. He was yeah. a consultant. He uh, he was a yes. consultant on the film in 1958. Um, so at that point he was, yeah, he was probably in his 70s and mm-hmm. uh, he had been a second class passenger on on the maiden voyage was one of only 13 adult males in second class to survive yeah um when they were doing the scene with all the extras on the boat deck and they were gonna have the water crash upward they caught him on the set um and restrained him and um from what i remember reading you know i think he had tears in his eyes and he said i wanted to i wanted to go down with her this time or something to that effect it's yeah, that's a really sad story. He kind of wanted to, you know, he wasn't really intending to drown himself. But no, no, I mean, but even if it was just sort of a be moment. a victim in that moment, he would be able to kind of, I don't know, 
balance it out in his mind maybe you know like i went down with her that time mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i'm not uh we're just saying that people shouldn't be you know monday morning quarterbacks i'm not going to be an armchair psychologist or anything but like regardless of the reasoning even if it was just sort of like a moment of panic's not the word but a, mo- a moment of just like emotion or sadness or mm-hmm. just being you know flashing right back to that moment again because i can see how that might bring you back yeah i can't imagine like being a consultant on Uh something like that having survived it yeah turning to them seeing that scene i can't imagine the feeling like i don't feel like i would want to be there but i don't know i don't know how i'd respond to someone turning to be like so alexia was that what it was like when the water came up and washed away all your family or was a little bit less (laughs) right was it more subtle than that or like could you see the terror in their eyes or was did you just turn around and they were gone it'd be like "Uh, uh." yeah and one of the things with those consultants is the ones that were there weren't, they didn't lose anyone on board. Not, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. Beasley was traveling alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Edith Russell visited the set and she was traveling alone. And oh. um, uh, Boxall actually was a consultant, which surprised his family a lot because yeah. he hadn't really talked about it until that point. I'm not going to uh, talk about it to anybody except for everyone involved with this film. <laughs> Okay, honey. And uh, maybe that was his way of making peace with the past. I don't know. Uh, I get it. I understand. Yeah. Uh, there's Tell a it picture, once, get it out. Right. There's a picture of him that I absolutely loved. He's sitting in a dark theater watching A Night to Remember, and it's taken from behind his seat. You just see him looking up at the screen, and on the screen is the Titanic sinking. Oh. He's all alone in that theater. It's just such a... I just looked it up. ...gripping picture. Yeah. Ooh. I just, I, you know, what was going through his mind watching that. It looks, wondered. it looks like a staged photograph, listeners. It's, as he said, yeah. you know, Box Hall's right here and he's just being, the only thing you see is his, you know, profile being lit by the screen where the Titanic is sinking. It, it's, it's a powerful it picture. Staged. Yeah. It's not, but it, it, it ooh. well, well, it might be a little bit. It could but... be. It could have been. That would be a really interesting act, Mister Mister Boxhall. I have a, a, this amazing idea for a shot. I, I just need you to watch that for a second. Yeah, watch, relive this moment. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm making by light yourself of it, but... in darkness. Yeah, <laughs> that's I... a powerful image, though. That is, and you know, that almost. I mean, it has something to do with the film, but it almost has nothing to do with the film. Yeah. Or like he could be looking at a poster for the thing, but you know, it's just interesting to see how you know people react. And I mean, I <clears throat> excuse me, I know nothing about Lawrence Beasley as a human being or anything, but I can imagine where that would be kind of tough to sit through, even if you were sane up until that moment, just had a moment of where your brain just shut off and then it shut right back on, and you were like, "Whoa." Sorry right. about that, everybody. I'm I'm back. I'm back. Even if you just had that like one second where you were completely lost at it, it's like that's understandable, and I can see where that would be a lot. Yeah, I, yeah, I get where he was coming from. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's hard to it's hard to verbalize it, but you know, you can kind of. He was probably feeling like that would balance things out, and I don't know. 
survivor's guilt and all the all these psychological phenomena they don't really make any sense when you you know actually break down the thought process because you know you and i talking about it we're like no it doesn't make sense to die on a movie set because you didn't die during the real thing i mean it sounds patently insane to say it out loud but i'm sure that in the moment for him it was a completely logical thing to do it was like this will this will fix everything i'm gonna feel so much better oh yes I don't think they ever really he I don't think he ever really elaborated on it very much either and probably wasn't asked about it. it was, I push it down, push it down. Yeah, it was kind of like, well, he lived. And, yeah. Again. again. <laughs> That's not up on me. <laughs> it's it kind of just reminds me of like this is going to sound like I'm making a silly comparison but videos where people are doing something silly and then for a second it's dangerous like i was watching a a tiktok someone showed me of a girl who was holding the railing of a boat and dancing Mm -hmm. but then she jumped at the same minute that the boat went down and for a second it looked like she was going to go over the railing oh and they were at the back of the boat so that would have been right into the propellers Oh. And yeah, so but luckily for her, she landed right back down. But the the soundtrack to the background is people going, "Woo, yeah!" <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're laughing because it's the relief of, "Oh, woo, right. woo, she's okay, woo, she's okay." It's yeah. that extreme reaction of the moment has passed, but it's just that it's just the way that you're reacting because you you're you're scared. Because in that moment, you were like, oh, my God, Sarah's about to go over the boat. Yeah. Then you're so relieved. All you can do is laugh. Exactly. And sometimes all you can do is like laugh or cry or just move on. And, yeah. you know, I think that sometimes like maybe that's what they did. Or just box all was just kind of like, that was weird. Lunch. <laughs> like, or it's like, maybe it's not how you want to react. But it's just kind of like, I, we, you just got to got to move on. Yeah. I mean, not box <laughs> off easily. Excuse me. Beasley, Yeah. Yeah, it might have been a little, it was a little emotional moment. It would have been, I mean, I, we really don't know it was mentioned, no. but I don't think it was really ever detailed. I don't think that incident was detailed no. very much. I just think that it's a good example of how the how it would affected the survivors, even outside of the officers. I mean, you, you know, some of the, you hear the more tragic ends, you know, Fleet ended up taking his own life. And, right. you know, Robert Hitchens came to an extraordinarily tragic end. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, uh, Eloise, Eloise Hugh Smith, who I wrote mm-hmm. a book about. Yeah. You Very know, they, tragic. They are. And you hear these sad stories where you find, you know, people talk like, yeah, my grandmother, I didn't know she was a Titanic survivor until like she died and she never talked about it. People who are just so hurt by it that they kept it inside. It's like it, there was a lot of different reactions to how things happened after the sinking. And, you know, you can't help feel sorry for every single one of them. Right. Yeah, a lot of people never talked about it until uh, much later in life. Like, uh, you know, we think of Ruth Becker and Eva Hart. I know I sort of grew up seeing them on documentaries and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, they were always very outspoken. But in reality, they didn't start talking about it until around that time. You know, yeah. it wasn't something they always talked about. Um, then you have one of the men I've researched a lot is Robert Williams Daniel, um, fellow Virginian. And he uh, he really never mentioned it after 1912. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. It, again, and, you know, maybe 
maybe, maybe, maybe if back then we had these, you know, Facebook groups now where you could join Virginia Titanic survivors, <laughs> have your little meetup. I mean, yeah. it sounds like it sounds like I'm being kind of glib, but what if they had, you know, it'd be nice if they'd had those networks or if you had, you know, you could, if they'd set up a hotline, like if you were a Titanic survivor, call here for free mental health consultations or whatever. Yeah. In the early like, days, mm-hmm. in the early days of the Titanic Historical Society, you know, they, mm-hmm. they would do little conventions and you would have a number of them uh, mm-hmm. getting together for the first time since yeah. the sinking. Um, yeah, I, I can see that. And that. That must have been a very unique experience for them. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, comparing, I'm sure they compared notes and mm-hmm. yeah. It, it's the sort of thing that you know you, you 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 just don't understand unless you've been through it and you can try your your very hardest by listening to the things that people tell you but unless you've been through that exact experience you don't connect on that same way so i, I feel that seems like the the network that tis was trying to foster that for them is, is really important i'm sure they mm-hmm. probably appreciated it a lot yeah yeah i think most of them did and um good of course, she also had Robert back to Robert Williams Daniel. He mm-hmm. and Eloise Hugh Smith actually married um, two years after the sinking. Those two survivors married. Is, uh, they were the only two who weren't romantically linked before the sinking who ended up getting together. They actually met on the Carpathia. And, That's uh, abundantly cute, actually. It is, yeah. But to have somebody there that knows. Yeah. I mean, knows what you went through. Yeah, that's incredible. I love learning. I I wrote down the names. I love learning about new things and new people because, oh, I just hit a button. I, (laughs) whoops. Well, I realize that the longer that I do this show, the more I realize that like all these incredible links to people, like I'm from Maryland. I was born and raised in Maryland. I live in Texas now but i don't want it's too hot and i'm allergic to everything here but um i didn't know about either of these people and they're in you know you and this is all in my it's next door to me there's so many more connections than we're than we're aware of not just to titanic Mm -hmm. but to (laughs) all Mm -hmm. kinds of shipwrecks and disasters and seas and portals and town portals places there's a texas town named after a titanic passenger which one um, you know, I want to say it's called Rowe, Texas. Maybe. Hold on. Um, Thanks. his name was Arthur Rowe. If I... Yeah, this is off the top of my head, so I might not be exactly correct, but I do know he was a victim in first class and they named a town in nice. Texas. I'm going to have to actually look that up, but I'm not very sure. I believe, I believe it's Rowe, Texas. And I think you're probably was... right. I think it was Arthur Rowe. Alfred Rowe? Is it Alfred? There's a person named Alfred Rowe who was from Texas. Yeah. That's cool. him. Yeah. But there's all kinds of interesting links all over. And it's interesting to keep learning about them. Like, I didn't know about um, Eloise Hugh Smith and Robert oh. Williams Daniel. I mean, I'd heard the names, but I didn't know they were from Virginia. Uh, Eloise was from West Virginia and Robert was from Virginia. Um and they met on the Carpathia and were married in 1914. Of course, Eloise 
was on the Titanic returning home from her honeymoon. She was pregnant and lost her husband in the sinking. Mm. Yeah. So, and uh, that was actually, the, she was the subject of my first book, uh, Gilded Tragedy. I was just about to say, before I let you go, you need to tell me what your book's called. Yeah, it's it's called Gilded Tragedy, West Virginia's Titanic Widow. I could have written this on a new piece of paper, but I wrote it in the corner of one instead, <laughs> all awkwardly, like a smart person. But you, listeners, should write it on a real piece of paper and not do what I did. Because that was not <laughs> smart. It's uh, the only full-length biography of her that's been written so far. Nice. And, uh, uh, awesome. worked extensively with her granddaughter on, uh, there's a lot of uh, photographs from Eloise's photo albums that the granddaughter and I sort of sifted through and identified things in uh, it was a labor of love that's amazing I'm gonna I, I absolutely need to get a copy of this but um before I uh, let you go is there anything else you want to tell us or me or um just thank you for having me and thank you for uh you know doing this podcast well thank you for coming and, on it was and having honor. a variety of people on it's, uh, <laughs> it is a know. fun variety i think yeah it's a good you know you have a lot of different people on um, that's true <laughs> i would encourage people who are truly interested in the titanic to look into maybe joining a society because there are yeah. things you get in the journals that will never be online. Um, and I, like I said, I'm a trustee with Titanic International Society. So if any of your listeners are interested in joining us, um, our website is titanicinternationalsociety.org. And uh, we our dues are $50 per year. You get four issues of our journal, Voyage, uh, which contains a lot of exclusive material and new finds. We would love to have you as a member. I will also put the um, links and all that in the episode description when it comes out. Oh, so yeah, yeah, don't worry about writing it down if you're driving or something. If you want to join the society, yeah, I'll make that easy that. for you to find. You'll <laughs> <laughs> make that easy for you to find because we would like uh, we would like you to join the society safely. Yes, safely after awesome. you park. Right. Uh, thank you, Brandon, so much for coming on and talking to me. Thank you for having me. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word, Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C-T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at TitanicTalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's TitanicTalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!